This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Today we begin with the movement to defund the school police in the Los Angeles Unified School District, or LAUSD, an issue that has been a concern of education equity advocates for years, but has now come to the forefront in the wake of the mass demonstrations and revulsion at police violence across the country. The LA School Police Department, a force of some 400, accounts for about $70 million of the district budget. And there is momentum now to defund the police and reallocate the money to bring in counselors, services, and programs that serve black and brown youth as students, not suspects. We hear from two student activists from Students Deserve, or SD, Sarah Giotto, a rising senior at Dorsey High School, and Asia Bryant, who just graduated from Hamilton High School. Both have been deeply involved in organizing against the police presence and are leading the efforts of Students Deserve with Black Lives Matter Los Angeles to defund school police now supported by the Teachers Union, or UTLA, and which will be taken up at the LAUSD school board meeting this week. We then turn to the LA Times legal affairs columnist, former U.S. attorney and professor of constitutional law, Harry Lippman, who joins us to discuss the standoff between Attorney General William Barr and President Trump against Manhattan U.S. Attorney Jeffrey Berman. Friday night, Barr announced Berman would resign, but Berman refused. And Saturday afternoon, President Trump announced that he fired Berman. But it doesn't stop there. And Harry Lippman will help us understand the dizzying array of legal and practical questions this raises. We also talked to Harry about the surprising decision on the Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia case announced last week that saw our very conservative Supreme Court come to an unexpected rule by a vote of six to three that says Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act forbids discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or transgender status, a hugely significant result. All this when Jacobin Radio returns in just a moment. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman, and today we are really pleased to have two very special guests, beginning with us, Sarah Giotto and Asia Bryant. They are student leaders in Student Deserve, and I'm going to tell you more about them in just a minute, but we're going to be talking about the defund the police movement, and that is certainly that we're talking about it in terms of the LAUSD. But first to say that in the month literally only a month since the grotesque police murder, and some would call it a public lynching, of George Floyd and now Rayshard Brooks. We've seen demonstrations in all 50 states and in cities and towns across the country and the world, all raising the issue of policing and systemic racism. The scope of the demos, as well as the violent response by the police, all in the midst of a pandemic, has only underscored the breadth of public support and sympathy for the demands raised about policing and public safety, usually expressed by the simple demand, defund the police, which we can unpack in various ways. But here in Los Angeles, the issue of police in the schools, which has been a concern of education equity advocates for years, has been reinvigorated thanks to this national conversation. And in the UTLA, that's the United Teachers of Los Angeles, they have now 
endorsed the uh, idea of defunding the school police that was announced recently in coordination with Black Lives Matter for Los Angeles. And this week, the school board for Los Angeles, for the Los Angeles Unified School District, is going to take up the question and decide. So with that, I want to welcome Sarah Jata and Asia Bryant. Sarah is a rising senior at Dorsey High School and Asia Bryant has just graduated at Hamilton High School. Congratulations for that. They have both been deeply involved in the years-long fight to end random searches in schools, in the launch of the No Pepper Spray campaign, and in the campaign launched once schools shut down in March and are leading now the efforts of Student Deserve and Black Lives Matter for Los Angeles to defund school police in Los Angeles Unified District and to redirect that $70 million into services for Black youth. In other words, both have been organizing against the police presence uh, before the broader movement emerged with so much public sympathy. And we're really fortunate that you're joining us. So welcome. And let's just begin with perhaps you describing Student Deserve and when and why it came about. And Sarah? Um, I guess I'll start off. So Student Deserve is a grassroots organization that focuses on making Black Lives Matter in schools. And that is through an invest by this lens. So we choose to invest in Black, Brown, and Muslim youth and divest from policing them and prioritizing budgeting into PSWs, counselors, all things that will benefit the whole child within schools. So, and this has been a years-long effort, right? And then all of a sudden, the events of the last month have reinvigorated, as they say, this campaign. There's been several stories in the, in the Los Angeles Times, and you've been prominently pictured, and uh, you addressed the rally on Tuesday. All of this happening while, of course, we're supposed to be social distancing and wearing masks. And it's an interesting question. My family was at that rally, and and I guess it's it, the issue is so important that people feel that they have to express this now, and that's certainly caught on around the world. But can you just uh, perhaps we'll let Asia begin and then go back to Sarah to talk about what are the main issues that you're organizing around? We're basically organizing more so around, honestly, equal opportunity for Black students making Black Lives Matter in schools, as Sarah did stated, because as we know, Black students are always at a constant disadvantages when it comes to um, certain situations. I feel like Sarah could touch more on that too as well. Sarah, please. Okay, yeah. As y'all know, um, our campaign is focused on like defunding the police, but with that comes a lot of, I guess you could say, subcategories. So Students deserve like our most recent win would have been um, the random searches campaign, which focused on, you know, the school to prison pipeline and the no tolerance policy abolishing that just for the benefit of black students. And then throughout last year, the focus was on banning the use of pepper spray since we found out that it disproportionately affected black students. So it's all centered around Black liberation, just because students serve is knowledgeable of the fact that Black liberation leads to liberation of all people. So our focus has always been prioritizing the livelihoods of students in schools. And I guess you could say through these different campaigns, that's how we've utilized our movement. Yeah, within the movement. Mm -hmm. I would think that for many people, this is kind of an issue that they hadn't thought about. You know, certainly we, they think about 
safety, but they don't know about this huge police presence in the schools. And it's certainly come to the fore when there's, you know, instances where you've seen either police slamming 11-year-olds to the floor and against the wall, wondering how that's possible, or pepper spraying or other things. But I think it begs the question, what do police do on the school? And I should just say, my own kids went through LAUSD, and there used to be in the grade schools the D.A.R.E. program, D.A.R.E. to say no to drugs. And then they started using metal detectors. And then all of a sudden there's police and it just seemed like this crazy progression to where we are now. So let's start with what is it that the police do on the campuses? Um, Asia Bryant. Of course. I've done my little research. They don't assist when searches are taking place. They are literally there if need be to assist with more of the handling of students when you have a large amount of students on one big campus. I know for a fact that they are used in a sense of protection, not for just the students, but of course outside as well. Yeah, the big question is what we're trying to figure out is what do they need other than, of course, the bigger picture of posing the threat in and out of school. Well, maybe Sarah could pick it up because I know that you had witnessed instances of using pepper spray and that would, I'd like to know the circumstances and the, and the amount of times that you've seen something like that at your high school and what kinds of questions came up as a result. What, what, what has been your experience in other words? I would say that police presence has increased with the increase of Black students. And we see that happen at schools with a lot of Black students. So it is a pattern. With that pepper spray incident, that's not the only thing that they've done. I see multiple arrests all the time. Um, They're in front of the schools. They're arresting students in front of others. I remember specifically that day when that pepper spray incident happened, they ended up arresting a student outside of the school because we were called out. It was deemed early dismissal that day due to the fight. And we were called out and we were standing in front of the yard and they apprehended a student right in front of us, taking him into the police car. So these different experiences kind of shift our mindset towards what we think is normal in our school settings. Black students are being taught that you're supposed to handle and defuse situations like what the police people do, because that's what we see all the time in our community. People are supposed to get arrested in front of other people and shamed for it. So, yeah, that's something we continuously see in our Black neighborhoods, and this is happening in our Black communities. And I think the question goes to why it's only happening in ours, because we don't see it in schools with predominantly white students, where they have other de-escalation tactics, where they have counselors and interventions, um, including students that are more centered around rehabilitating them into their school society, where Black students are more so policed and pushed outside. I wanted to ask just on that, because I read somewhere that the police were issuing citations if students were tardy, for example. There were a lot of questions about what that meant. One of you mentioned the school-to-prison pipeline. It doesn't help that kids get citations. I don't know if they're school citations, city citations, what kind of impact that has is do they have to pay money? In other words, I think you just need to explain to our audience what it means when disciplinary issues that are normally handled in a school between the school administration, the teachers, and the students has now been delegated to the police on campus. What does it mean? Go ahead, Sarah. 
I'll, I'll go back to what I said, like it, it shifts our mindset to think that that becomes the normal for us. And we, like, again, we continuously see it happen to Black students where we're continuously being policed. And so I believe what the school to prison pipeline teaches us is that violence is okay and that it needs to happen in order to prevent harm to schools. One thing I think is you both just brought up alternative methods of dealing that. And of course, I think some people would ask, is there any circumstance you could imagine where having police might be useful? Let's say if uh, a teacher or student was threatened in some way. Is this something that you think you need police for? Do you have, because I know that you have both and your organization is laying out alternative methods of dealing with the kinds of crises that would probably be normal in schools. And so maybe we could just take it there and then get a better understanding of what what we're really talking about. I'll go back to the pepper spray incident that could have been prevented by teacher intervention. And we know that happens all the time because fights happen all the time. You know, you're dealing with testosterone, you're dealing with children. So we know that there are other means to defuse and prevent situations from happening like that, even before fights take place. But that isn't being used because Black students are deemed unworthy of that. I don't even know how to call it. Of that... Um, what, consideration? Yes, of that <laughs> consideration. There you go. Thank you. Of that consideration. And it goes to like what that teaches us that okay, if we're deemed unworthy of it, that's probably because we we shouldn't be handled like that. We don't deserve love. We don't deserve care within the school system and that the school system clearly doesn't care about us. And it's, it's just a cycle. It's a continuous cycle that Black children, Black students are placed in. And it's it results in like detrimental issues that happen in the past. Like, you know, they carry that violence throughout their lives and later on they might perpetuate it because that is what was taught to them. Maybe you could continue there, Asian, because, you know, the UTLA has been discussing this this week, and they said, if you think about the budget for school police, it's $70 million in this district. Now, the whole budget is $7.9 billion, but there was a spectacular strike last year, and big issues about the strike was having smaller classes, more counselors, more nurses, more supportive staff. I don't remember if in the strike demands the issue of policing came up. You could probably educate me and the listeners about that. But here we are now where we've got the union coming on board saying that there should be other ways of dealing and de-escalating these kinds of normal conflicts. And pretty soon we're going to hear from the school board as well, but maybe you could, you know, elaborate on that, Asia. As far as like UTLA, um, I feel like back when the strike was happening, the issue of policing on campuses wasn't as prominent as it is now, as a matter of fact. So I think their main shift is always putting the students first. The students come first because we are the future. So we've been saying this for a long, long time now. Policing on campuses, it's just criminalizing your youth, Black youth especially. Now people want to listen. Now we're able to get people on board and have these conversations. We know the alternatives. We know the answers. We know the information and how it could work. We just need the support and the guidance from teachers, from administration, from faculty, from everyone. Because once again, students weren't being listened to. We were just, you know, the secondhand voice or the underdogs in the situation. Um, to kind of go back to what Sarah was talking about as far as like alternatives, 
Restorative justice, however, even though, you know, that is a pathway and is a program for my school, it's pick and choose what certain situations that they use that for. If it's a fight, of course, you're going to have to use restorative justice to figure out what caused that fight. But for me, I feel like if it's between Black students or Black youth, it's automatically dismissed to the, the disciplinary committee where it's adult led, where it's just adult, there's no student present. So I feel like we're able to start tweaking these committees, these certain situations in which um, alternatives are being used with the guidance of UTLA, with the guidance of teachers on our campuses, and with the guidance of admin, it would make for a much better learning environment, for a much better school environment. It would make the students and parents happy as well, and not just us as students and us as Black youth as well. And it would also, I think I'm interpreting what you're saying, is would it, it would put in place practices that would not be so discriminatory, as you both said in the beginning about the way that incidences are treated for white students and for black students, for example, and I'm assuming for Latino students as well. So let me then ask you, and the union has actually come out and said this as well, but I saw on Twitter that LA Student Deserve did a survey And I'd like you both, I'm assuming you were both involved in that survey, and the results look pretty spectacular. So could you talk about who was involved in it, what the questions were, and what the responses were? I'll take that one. (laughs) For the survey, we wanted to gather data as far as between students, former students, and our parents as well, who were former students of LAUSD, um, because we know we have this idea of a false sense of safety going on right now. So when the questions range from, you know, have you ever had an encounter with school police on campuses? Yes, no, did not apply. And then the following question asks, uh, well, what were some of the instances where you being followed? Uh, were you being racially profiled? Were there Was there an incident that had to call for force? And of course, it asks for your district in which you were located, I believe, in District 6. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, the, uh, those were like at least four questions um, from there. Oh, you asked, did you, do you feel safe? with school police on campus? That was a prominent question. That is what that survey tackled. And with that survey, we compiled this data, which was released, I believe, Thursday night. I think it was a whopping of over at least 80%, 85% of the students said that they did not feel safe on campus with uh, police presence as well. And so maybe you can pick that up, Sarah, because I printed out what I saw on Twitter, and it said that 5,433 people took part in all of the the LAUSD board member districts in the survey. 86% of students and alumni called for the defunding of school police and 88% of current Black students wanted that to happen. Then, you know, as you just said, if further asked about incidences of being followed, questioned, randomly searched, harassed, use of police force and being racially profiled. So this is like that concrete data. It's incredible that you were able to do that. First, let's, uh, from you, Sarah, hear more about this. And is this going to be the ammunition that you take to the school board? So with the data that we found, 86% of survey respondents said that they wanted to defund the police. And 
a lot of those respondents wanted to take what was from the $70 billion budget and place them into PSWs, college counselors, class sizes. 79.4% wanted PSWs, full-time PSWs. 74.2% wanted full-time college counselors. 72.8% wanted smaller class sizes, which like kind of go hand in hand with what UTLA, the UTLA strike was about. That is what they want for students as well. So yeah, that interconnectedness comes up again. With that being said, with the surveys, survey results, since it is a representation of the voices from former and current LUSD students uh, mostly, it kind of pushes the narrative that defunding the police is beneficial for all people and that this isn't something that is completely new and different and just brought up out of nowhere. This is something that has been developing over time by different movements, specifically um, the Black Lives Matter movement. And this push for defunding police will later lead to a better school climate that we are not seeing now. And prior to COVID-19, it wasn't all that good. And once we return to schools, we want to see a more, not reformed, but a school climate that really actually prioritizes their students. Yeah. I have to ask this question because you've both done a great job in organizing this and the survey kind of shows the widespread support. So on the campus, and I know you haven't been on campus literally since mid-March, right? As you know, all of us have not been on our respective campuses, but would you expect that it's the same kind of support on your own campuses and do teachers support you as well? Or is this, I guess I want to understand is students deserve only students or is it sort of the entire campus that are trying to push for these demands and in particular to focus in on the detrimental aspects of having police on campus versus the kind of programs that you're proposing instead? It's made up of students, parents, teachers, everyone that cares for the benefit of one child in a school system that doesn't necessarily care about them. Um, yeah, Asia, you can take on. As both Sarah said, it's composed of everyone. Um, as far as teachers being along, getting your school on board, it's always the toughest challenge because with certain campaigns, with this certain situation, there are, I wouldn't say there are people that are disagree, but they just don't know the knowledge behind it. When they hear deep on the police, they think of, well, who's going to protect us? Once again, that false sense of safety comes into role here. It's all about educating. So I feel like we as students deserve, our job is to simply educate you on why we're saying defund school police. Of course, there are going to be some teachers who you'll still bring information to and they still feel like, you know what, this isn't something that necessarily I can sign on to as an individual, but I know the union will because that's who they are under. Um, this is really interesting. I know that at the district headquarters where you both were, that the demand or the chant was, hey, LAUSD, defund the police and students, not suspects. And so I think, you know, part of what you've been doing right now in this interview is like educating people on what the police do on campus and try to imagine a kind of different school where you don't have police. Maybe first address students, not suspects. And then secondly, I guess the broader issue of safety. Do you, would it make you feel safer to have no police on campus and these other counselors and institutions and programs? I think the SNS, which is students, not suspects, kind of changes like the language we use 
often when it comes to situations or altercations that occur on campus. Yeah, it's just basically focused on language and we need to be able to see the humanity that Black students actually have because that's not often perceived of us. And I forgot the second part of your question. Well, it's really just about, you know, the students not suspects and how you imagine. Like for most people in the country, I would say that when you think of schools, you don't think of policemen on, you know, on campus. It's and that seems to be something that's come about what I don't know in the last 20 years or so, maybe, maybe less. And so it's a new feature and it's something that could be dispensed with and probably not missed. But that's my question to you. Yeah. Someone imagined that schools will have police. Someone imagined the school to prison pipeline. We know that there was a time, as you said, that there was no police on campus and everything was centered around the actual student and that's not given to us now and we have to think about like why is that why LASD has been prioritizing policing us rather than actually educating us and preparing us for our better futures Asia can you please like add on yeah of course as far as not like not having school police on campuses I feel like the presence of having police on campus, it adds stress to the students and to the environment in general. Because when you see a school police officer and you see a police officer in general, you think you're thinking of like a threat. There's a threat somewhere on here that I need to be cautious of, but there's really no threat when you're inside of a school because this is supposed to be a place of learning environment, supposed to be a place where I feel safe and I feel protected. Necessarily, I don't feel protected because I feel like there's always the immediate thought of something happening. That necessarily doesn't have to be on my end. It could be on the police officers and who isn't necessarily trained for sensitivity training in this sense. I just know for a fact, I've been always so dismissive of police presence on my campus. I always get like a fearful feeling, but I'm so dismissive dismissive of it because once again, I had that all sense of safety. I'm like, you know what? They're not here to harm me. They're just simply here to protect my school. But why is it that, you know, they're doing more bad than they're doing good for here being on campus? Right. And if you take a look at, like, the history of policing, you know, the institution of policing is centered around, like, Black terror, um, violence as a whole. And that's part of the reason why, you know, when they come into our communities, they aren't necessarily a representation of safety. They are a representation of what we fear, at least fear the most. So when you have that, you're not listening to what people's experiences have been and what students are saying. It, It becomes a greater issue that needs to be tackled. We're, we're almost out of time, but I just wanted to ask you finally, because the school board is going to meet this week. Are you going to be there presenting the case? And what, what kind of an outcome do you expect or hope for? <laughs> I would hope that the board members actually take the time to listen to what we're saying and see it as a way to better prioritize students and their livelihoods and focus on the interconnectedness of everything. Because, you know, this just doesn't only affect Black students and what we do, it affects everybody. And centering this movement around Black liberation is centering a movement for like all people. And it'll benefit all people. Violence needs to be stopped. It can't be taught in schools. And then that goes into a whole different conversation about how we're learning in schools and how that needs to be different as well but it starts with defunding the police and investing in our futures. 
Very well said. And I think we can end it there. Wish you the best of luck. You're both doing amazing work. Asia Bryant, congratulations on graduating. I don't know what's next for you, but I'm sure that we're going to hear more from you as you make your mark in this world. And Sarah Giotto at Dorsey High School. Asia graduated from Hamilton High and Sarah is the student at Dorsey High School. And continuing that long tradition of students being in the forefront of all the important (laughs) social struggles. And I want to thank you both for joining us today. We'll be following what happens at the school board this week, and maybe we can have you back to discuss it even further. Thanks for joining us. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Very pleased to have Harry Littman with us to discuss the standoff between Attorney General William Barr and Manhattan U.S. Attorney Jeffrey Berman that began Friday night when Barr said Berman would resign and Berman refused to resign. And then Trump went ahead and fired him Saturday afternoon. Harry Littman says this raises bedrock issues of constitutional power, as well as a dizzying array of legal and practical maneuvers. We're going to discuss them and then spend the rest of the time on the Bostock decision that concludes that the LGBTQ community are included in the protection offered by Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Uh, Both of these decisions, though very, very different, raise questions of, as I said, of constitutional power and interpretation. And we're really lucky to have Harry with us. And I should just say Harry has an op-ed on the Bostock decision on June 18th in the LA Times and on the 20th on the Berman, let's call it imbroglio. Harry (laughs) Lippmann is a professor of constitutional law both UCLA and UCSD. He's a former U.S. attorney and deputy assistant attorney general, and he is currently a legal affairs columnist. You'll see him all the time on MSNBC at the LA Times opinion page and I guess many other places. So, Harry, welcome. And let's begin <laughs> all right. just with what's going on because uh, it's, a, it's a moving situation. So what's going on? Yeah, it, so it really is just within the last hour the president fired or purported to fire Jeffrey Berman. We had to expect that was coming. Berman is appointed under a special statute by the court. Sometimes in certain circumstances, like if there's a political standoff, which happened here, the court can go ahead, the judges of the district, and appoint the U.S. attorney. And when that happens, the statute says That person continues to serve unless the president appoints or nominates a new person who is then confirmed. So that's what Berman's position is. Trump's position is going to be, I don't care what that statute says. I'm the president. If I fire you, you are fired. And the reason it had to be Trump and not Barr who did it is there is an opinion in the department from the Office of Legal Counsel, that kind of obscure little coven on the fourth floor that we've heard about that produces opinions for the executive branch. And they said a while ago, if you have somebody appointed under this statute, the attorney general cannot fire him because that would encroach on the court. But the president can because their position is the president always can to try to say that the president couldn't would encroach on the president's constitutional 
authority. So that's how we're in this standoff. When Barr tried to do it and Berman said, nothing doing, I'm not leaving, Barr's obvious next move was to go to the president and say, you have to fire this guy. And Trump right away, of course, accommodated him. Which he likes to do, but it was so this was the expected move. You didn't expect to see it stay where it was, where one says you have to go and the other one says he won't. But in your op-ed piece, I think you kind of come down on the side that Trump has the right to do this. So could you explain? And then we'll get into why they're doing it in the first place. Sure. And that's where the bedrock question comes in. I do think, you know, you've heard that Trump, especially Barr, loves to talk about these unitary executive bedrock powers. And I think he's very quick, too quick to proffer them. Here's one place where he's not being too quick. I do think that the Constitution and the power given to the president really means that the president has to be able to make the call. If there's a U.S. attorney serving him or her that the president wants to get rid of, they should have that power. But The courts have never exactly said so. And if Berman now goes forward and says, look, here's what that statute says. Now the department comes in and says, statute, smatute. The Constitution says we can fire them. That's going to take some time. That's going to take some months. And there is a procedure for the courts to say, while we decide it, Berman, you're out. But that's a pretty high bar, so to speak, for them to surmount. So unless the court says, while well, we think this over, Berman or now Audrey Strauss, his first assistant, are out, then Barr and Trump still are in trouble because that either Berman or his assistant will be the, the kind of prosecutor who will be vigilant about protecting the investigations. I know this gets really complicated really fast, Susie, but that's the basic idea. They've got, I think, a good argument, but it'll take some time. It's the exact opposite. It's kind of a rich justice of what Trump did during impeachment. He proffered arguments knowing they would take a while to get through the courts. Now it's the other way around. And every day that Berman or Strauss are still in office is another day where they can pursue investigations against Trump and his circle. But we only have, what is it, I think, like 140 days left in this administration. So, I mean, is there a precedent that he could get the Supreme Court to rule on this and he could fire him, let's say, within the next 30 days? Is that something that could happen? There is a precedent. (laughs) It's a little bit like if your viewers are following the Flynn case, because to do it that fast, what they basically have to say up to the Supreme Court is, Don't let the district court think about it. Don't think about the evidence. Don't think about why Barr did it. Don't think about what Barr said to Berman. It's just so fundamental that we, the Department of Justice and the president, are really hurt if you don't fire him right away. That'll be their move, but it's a tough move to make. It wouldn't be in 30 days. Very fast would be in something like 60 days. But as long as the court considers things on the merits, it's going to take longer than that. And just for our listeners, could you explain, Harry Littman, what this is really about? Because Trump famously came in and fired Preet Bharar, who was the prosecuting attorney in Manhattan, and replaced him with Berman. Isn't that the case? So what has Berman done now to to ruffle the feathers so much that he needs to be fired, according to Trump? Well, no one said this, and this, I think, is something a court's going to want to know, and not just a court. 
Congress, which has asked Berman to testify on Wednesday. But it ain't too hard to figure out what the betting odds are. He's pursued investigations that cut too close to Trump. Michael Cohen, the Trump Organization, the Trump Charities, possibly Roger Stone, maybe things we don't even know about. That's the kind of last bastion. Barr has come in and pretty well succeeded in throwing his weight around But shutting down open investigations in the Southern District of New York, even for an attorney general, not too easy. And it seems certain that that is what's happening and why Barr wanted to install someone who has no prosecutorial experience. That's who he wanted to choose and who obviously would be beholden to him. So I think it has to be about trying to quash ongoing investigations. You know, the Bolton book's coming out Tuesday, and Bolton says obstruction of justice of just this sort was a way of life for the Trump administration. And I think that's the deal here. You know, they wanted to smother an ongoing investigation that could harm the president. It's really pretty incredible, isn't it? Because it's the very issue that he's under fire for, and then he just gives more ammunition in these last months. So it must be that there is so much that is damning there in the investigation that for them, the guess the benefit outweighs the risk. (laughs) Well, I think that's part of it. I also think, you know, Adam Schiff was right. I think the lesson he drew from the impeachment was not, geez, I better play it, uh, you know, a little more careful, but was rather pedal to the metal. And, you know, no one's going to stop me now. So this is the kind of business he wants to attend to, especially if he loses the election, because then in 140 days, as you say, you'll have pending investigations in a very powerful prosecutor's office. And that would be very difficult to try to deal with from outside the presidency. Okay, as you say, Harry Lippman, a moving story and one yeah. that literally we, we have no way of knowing. So let's, you know, just keep our eyes on it and I'll invite you yeah. back as it rolls. <laughs> Thank you, Susie. And just to make one point in we're case not, it yeah, wasn't clear, uh-huh. is as long as Audrey Strauss is in there, Barr can't be satisfied. It was all he could do for now to fire Berman. Berman could still say, I'm not fired and go to court Monday. But the main point is the status quo doesn't work for Barr and Trump, whether it be Berman, whether it be Strauss, they need them out of there. But are you saying that just to clarify that firing Berman doesn't get rid of Strauss and the investigation continues or they go together? Precisely, because under the law still, the law they're going to say is unconstitutional. The automatic thing that happens with a court appointed U.S. attorney is the second in command assumes office. So even under the president's letter that he just sent lowering the boom, Audrey Strauss, the professional career prosecutor, is in office. So it's not. Barr and Trump's job is very far from done. So even if it stays this way, they're going to have to move to get her out and get their appointed person in, which, by the way, means all kinds of trouble in the Senate if they try to confirm somebody. And we already know, and this is another whole can of worms, that Lindsey Graham has come out this morning and said, we're going to have to follow normal procedures here. And normal procedures mean you can't get a nominee through unless the senators from New York say it's okay. They won't say it's okay. It's going to be an impasse and a mess for at least weeks to come. 
Very interesting. Okay, yeah. so let's now, I mean, this seems right. like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we have to switch, but I think it's all part of the same yeah. sort of mind-boggling totally. you know, incidents that plague this presidency. And we're all waiting for less interesting times, I think. Right. <laughs> I was a U.S. attorney. I got the call. It's time for you to resign. I mean, it would not have occurred to me that, well, that that's it, checkmate. But nope, not really. You know, the chickens have come home to roost, as it were. Wow. All right. Let's move now to, you know, there were two incredible decisions this yeah. week announced. Yeah. We're going to get a lot more decisions announced in this month, but 15. But yeah, 15. Oh my God. Okay. Well, I want to go back to the Bostock versus Clayton of Georgia decision. And last week, the very conservative Supreme Court came up with this surprising opinion, and it was unexpected precisely because of the court's conservatism. So it ruled by 6-3 that Title Seven of the 1964 Civil Rights Act forbids discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or transgender status. And I actually went through and read Title Seven last night just to understand it better. So it's a huge result and significant as it is unexpected because it means, for example, that employers can't discriminate against gays or transgender people in hiring. But what made it possible was that two conservative justices, Neil Gorsuch, a follower of the famous conservative justice Antonin Scalia and Chief Justice John Roberts joined the four liberals on the court in supporting the decision, and that was decisive. In your op-ed on June 18th in the LA Times, you elaborate this development by explaining the reasoning uh, by which Neil Gorsuch, the conservative justice who wrote the majority opinion, came to his progressive conclusion. So to help explain what he did, Harry, (laughs) can you first explain why the four liberal justices saw their vote against discrimination against gay and transgender people to be a no-brainer? What was their justification? Well, I mean, that's a good point. We would have expected them to be there anyway on any kind of theory, you know, just on either policy grounds or, or reading the statute. Their votes, I think, were foregone conclusions. And by the way, Title VII, as you say, that is a juggernaut of a law. It's the heart of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And the same language from it carries over into over a 100 other statute. So as Justice Alito lamented in dissent, it could be that all of these now also prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, even though none of them says so. So I think that each of the progressive four, for different reasons, would have found this an easy case. But of course, right now, the fifth vote, the center of the court, is the very conservative Chief Justice Roberts, And that's he occupies the place that Kennedy did before. And so that makes grabbing off a fifth always a bit of a long shot. But here, there's some reason to believe that Gorsuch went that way first and that Roberts, part of his thinking was, all right, the court's going to decide this. We have these five, four decisions that make us look political. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go over here. It won't change the result and it'll make the court seem less of a, you know, one vote partisan razor's edge uh, tribunal and six to three. Just, you know, he's got this special role as chief justice. But Gorsuch, as you say, did it for very conservative reasons. as it were. So but that's the surprise, I guess, you're 
you're intimating is that this was even a surprise for Roberts that that Gorsuch came over there. And what's in, we, if we have time, we could go into sort of the history of why they put this language in there in the first place, because it, it was at a time of Jim Crow. It was a very different end, end of the Civil Rights Act. Right. It wasn't about sexual orientation. I mean, not at all. It would have yeah. been would have stunned the 1960. I mean, this was a time when homosexuals were were treated horribly as sort of a matter of course in society. What did they what did they write? They wrote, "You can't discriminate because of sex." That's all they wrote. Simple words, says Gorsuch. Same words. They mean the same as they meant in 1964. But you know what? If you really think about what they mean. We realize today they didn't figure this out in 1964, maybe not in 1984, maybe not in 2004. But if you look at that principle of non-discrimination on the basis of sex, it forces you to say sexual orientation is covered. So it was an example of this very progressive result, but arrived at through a famously or supposedly Um, conservative process of reading only the words and the words according to their meaning at the time. Okay, so this is really where, you know, I want to go next, Um, Harry Littman, because Gorsuch and Scalia before him called themselves originalists. And you talk about this in your op-ed piece that for them, there's just no changing or evolution of the meaning of the constitution. And of course, you know, that it's, he said, I think it was Scalia that said famously, it's dead, 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 right. you know, not living, 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 but they're also textualists. And uh, I listened to an argument the other day of the difference between textualism and originalism, and right. it's all about intent or whether the, the text. So in other words, you interpret the law in terms of the meaning of the words, not the intentions of the framers of the Constitution. So maybe could you explain where Gorsuch fits in here and what makes this opinion so paradoxical as a result? Sure. I mean, I'm not sure it's paradoxical, but let me explain. There's two levels here. First, there are all the people who say we go by originalism, what it meant then. It's dead, dead, dead. Some of them will say what really matters is what was in the minds of the Congress or the drafters at the time. But Gorsuch and Scalia will say, no, you know, you made a a public law and the way the people understood it, that's what the law was. Now, you know, the notion is that was fixed for all time based on the meaning of those words. Sometimes the meaning of words evolve over time. And by that, I mean sort of the dictionary definition. But usually they don't. So what's going on here is Gorsuch has has correctly, I think, identified a principle, a principle that the words stand for, just like a principle that due process or equal protection stands for. And now that principle means to us something different from what it meant 50 years ago, or at least we would apply it differently. We would, a 64 person would have said, no, I'm not discriminating on the basis of sex if I don't want to hire a homosexual. But 2020 person would say, you know what, you are. We now understand better in society that that's also discrimination. A great example, if you bear with me, Susie, is Brown versus Board of Education. First, let me just say, almost everybody at the Supreme Court now says, in the words of Elena Kagan, we're all originalists now. And you would think that might mean we're all frozen in time. But this opinion shows we're not. 
So Brown versus Board of Education in the middle of the 19th century, Congress, you know, the Constitution was amended to say you can't discriminate based on race. At the time, schools were always segregated, and that's what they they would have expected. But without those words changing or the meaning of the words changing, you come a, a century later to Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, and the court says, when the Constitution amended to say you can't discriminate because of race, it did outlaw school segregation. Separate but equal is not equal. We, they didn't realize it. Plessy versus Ferguson didn't realize it, but we now realize it. And Justice Kavanaugh in dissent says Brown is an originalist. This is how he and most people now will see Brown. And what that means is you understand that the language of the Constitution might express a principle. The principle doesn't change, but as society changes and evolves, we can understand that principle better. We can understand that not discrimination on the basis of race means you can't segregate schools, and not discriminating on the basis of sex means you can't uh, discriminate against gays and, and lesbians, even if the people who wrote that would have wigged, it would have totally uh, <laughs> stunned them to think that's what they were doing. But you know what? That is what they were doing. So it's really interesting because in a way you're saying that there's almost no uh, settled meaning for words. Wrong. Really, (laughs) really important. Really, really, really important. There is a settled meaning for words. Originalists are right, but principles, like moral principles, like what is due process, what is equal treatment, society comes to think about that and understand. So it's not that words are meaningless. And I don't believe that. And I, th- and I think that would be a really untenable idea for constitutional interpretation. But there's a difference between the meaning of the words and what they apply to. This gets really kind of tough sledding. But, you know, equal protection means equal protection. But we now understand that means no school segregation. We've come as a society to understand that. We've come as a society to understand the the discrimination principle as applied to sexual orientation. The meaning of the words, the meaning of the constitutional principle hasn't changed, but what it amounts to, what it applies to, the circumstances that really trigger it, those have come to change. A society has come to be, you know, more evolved, to use a dangerous word, in but also views very of important rapid. moral principles. Sorry. All right. So I want to ask you then, because no one was more surprised at Gorsuch than the other conservative justices, it seems, especially, you know, Alito and Kavanaugh. Yeah. Right. But they argued that the plain meaning of discrimination on the basis of sex in 1964 would never have included gays and trans people. So can you explain what they're saying, especially Kavanaugh, and why they came up with the opposite conclusion as Gorsuch, especially because Kavanaugh also considers himself an originalist, Definitely. right? As so I who say, has the stronger argument there? Right. First, everybody considers themselves an originalist. So the yeah. first thing this shows mm-hmm. is originalism sounds like it's kind of technical and straightforward and gets judgment out. It doesn't. It still will require judgment from a judge. Now, Kavanaugh, he didn't talk that much about it. He said it's really to the legislature, Alito, Alito said, this is crazy. This is not what it meant in 1964 and not what it means today. But really, if you go through his opinion and he is fit to be tied, 
he's basically doing versions of everybody in 1964 knew that that's not what this was about. In other words, he really is doing versions of the so-called intent originalism. Nobody thought that at the time. But what he needs to do to really confront the argument is to say, you know, it doesn't mean what what we think of as discrimination based on sex. And by the way, there's a, a solid argument one can make against Gorsuch saying this isn't really what discrimination based on sex in its original sense or its current sense means. But that's not what Alito did. Alito was like, are you kidding me? Everybody (laughs) knew otherwise. But that's not the kind of originalism that the court has really endorsed. They've said, you know, what do the words mean? Uh, Even back then, and then how would you apply them? So that takes me to ask whether you think this uh, surprising conclusion or interpretation from Gorsuch was a one-off or not. And, you know, and then the other question would be about Chief Justice John Roberts, who considers himself first and foremost, I think, a pragmatist and somebody who's interested in the integrity of the court. So basically, can you talk about what you think? Is it a one-off? Yeah. Is it a one-off? And then we'll get to Roberts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know about a one-off, but I don't think you can expect, even though it should follow Gorsuch to all of a sudden become the ultimate progressive originalist. As I said, judgment will be required here. And he was persuaded by a pretty clever argument that, you know, the original words, here's what they, they meant. The next time, I don't know if he'll be persuaded. He will still be asserting that he is interpreting the words as they were written and the meaning that they had then, their sort of dictionary uh, meaning. Will he be amenable to having the sort of updated view of what that means for us as a society? Sometimes yes, sometimes no is my best bet. As for Roberts, who is also an originalist, the DACA case was very That's uh, what I interesting because yeah. that came out on Thursday. And in the DACA case, uh, I think the sort of big money quote will be, you know, Roberts wrote it and there was a famous doctrine. There is a famous doctrine in the law that says men that's who they meant at the time, have to turn square corners when they deal with the government. And what that meant then was there was a guy who had tried to apply for a tax refund. He deserved it, but he hadn't done it perfectly. And uh, Justice Holmes says the government can set the terms for how you get it, which is something we all know. Roberts, though, actually said the converse, which, you know, is a new argument. He said, Sometimes the government has to turn square corners when the stakes are high, meaning the human stakes, the stakes for the dreamers, you know, the whole the whole reasons that everyone holds them in great sympathy. So that was a really sonorous and kind of inspiring move on his part. I also think it's a conservative court. Roberts is conservative when it and it will break down according to the kind of issue I don't think it's the sort of bitter disappointment that conservatives felt with Kennedy. You know, they have a reliable five, but not an indomitable five. And there will be times. And of course, the the big question will be coming up in the Trump tax cases, the biggest of the 15 left. But there will be times when they'll go the other way. Gorsuch would be saying here, I'm just being a good conservative in this result. Good. A lot of conservatives might 
disagree. But in any event, I think one-off, no, but converted court, no. It's a conservative court. Harry Littman, thank you so much for elucidating that so well. I should also mention that you tweet at Harry Littman and you have a podcast called Talking Feds and people can find that wherever they find their podcast. Yeah. And if I can, we've just done a quick emergency episode about the Berman uh, thing with a lot of former prosecutors. So that'll be pretty interesting to hear. Terrific. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.